First Kings chapter 4. We're digging into the life of Solomon. Last week we looked at Solomon. We saw his service to God. We saw that Solomon loved God. We saw that Solomon worshiped God. He heard from the Lord. And we also saw a little bit of compromise in his life. Remember, he had gone down to Egypt. He'd made a peace treaty with Egypt. As a result of that peace treaty, he took a wife from Egypt. And that was something that he wasn't supposed to do. And although he was off on the right track, he had a lot of good qualities. There's that still that little bit of compromise there. And, and tonight we're going to see a little more compromise in his life. It's going to go from, from it, it's going to grow a little bit. It's going to grow just a little bit more. But he's, he's doing well. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, So King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials. And I'm not going to read all the way down to verse 19 and read all those names and make you sit through that. Um, but what I want you to take note of is a couple things. This is what we see spelled out here in the first 19 verses of 1 uh, Kings is we see Solomon's administration. There's an administration, there's, there's a governing body in place. And, and what we see is organization from the administration. And if you look real quickly with me at the end of, uh, at the end of chapter two, uh, three, I'm sorry, the end of verse three, we see the recorder. The end of verse four, we see the priests. We see the end of verse six, uh, we see over the labor force, supervisors. At the end of verse seven, we, or the beginning of verse seven, we see 12 governors. And this is kind of important because as we read here, this, this tells us, you know, we, we know that Solomon was a wise man. So as we look at the success of his kingdom, and we can, one of the things we can point to as we look at these first 19 verses is, wow, what an administration that he's put in place. What an, an organization. And I want to point out three things about his administration. Number one, it's not a one-man show. He can't run the kingdom by himself. He needs people to come alongside of him. He needs help to be able to accomplish the day-to-day -day activities. He can't do it all by himself. Do you ever feel like you're running something as a one-man show? It doesn't take you long to get worn out, does it? Solomon's here, he knows that he needs help, and he's, he's taken the time to select people. He's taken the time to train people. He's taken the time to empower them. Then he supervises them with leaders over top of an organizational structure here. It's not just Solomon ruling and, and reigning from, and whatever I say goes, and just make sure it gets done. There, there's an organization that's put in place, and it's, it's, it's solid. And I thought, man, that's something that we need to learn because what we're going to see is we go through these, these, these points of Solomon's organization, they're going to apply to our church. They're going to apply to our family. And I began to look at this and I thought, well, what's the application in Solomon's organization? This is just a bunch of names. How does it really mean anything to us? And as I looked at this, I thought, well, wow, the first thing is Solomon's not a one-man show. He's got quite a group behind him. And then I thought, you know, our lives need to be that way. Our families, is, 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 I'll speak to the men for a moment. Are we leading our families? Are we trying to do it by ourselves or are we not doing it all? For the women, are you allowing your husbands to, to, to lead you in that, in that way? Are you allowing him to do that? You know, to accomplish what a family has to accomplish, whether that be a family of one, a family of six, seven, ten, there needs to be an organization behind it. There needs to be a plan in place. There needs to be, there needs to be people with certain jobs and things that they do. Um, it, it needs to be organized like that. And Solomon here is not, he's not the one-man show. The second point is that it is organized. He's got recorders in place. He's got priests in place. He's got a labor force. He's got supervisors. And notice he's even got governors or administrators. He's got these governors in place. And, and they're, they're in, in charge of all these things. And I thought, man, how does that apply to our life? Then I got to thinking about, I got to thinking about our family. I thought, you know, what if our family, now our family's, my wife's pretty organized. So she keeps everything running pretty smoothly. But I couldn't imagine if I was to come home and the house be unorganized. I couldn't imagine if, well, we didn't know who was cooking dinner tonight, or we didn't know who was going to do the dishes tonight, or we didn't know who was going to do the laundry today, and it was just a big chaotic thing that piled up every day. 
I thought, man, our family needs to be organized. Our family is not a one-man show either. If your family, if there's, a lot of, if there's a lot of problems with who's doing what, try getting some organization in place. It might, it might just be a practical point that says, wait a minute, we can accomplish a lot more if we work together, if we put it all together in an organized thing. And the third point in Solomon's kingdom here, it's going to be creative. And I'll show you why it's going to be creative. If you notice with me in verse, uh, in verse 7, it says Solomon had, had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. He had 12 governors. Now you would right away think that's the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And you, as he set up these 12 governors, they, these 12 governors' territories didn't correspond with the, with the land given to the 12 tribes of Israel. Some were much larger, some were smaller. What he, what he was doing is he was trying to unify the country. Where they'd become separate among individual tribes, he was trying to bring everybody together. It's this, these 12 governors oversaw land that David had taken. Even, even outside of that. So he, they, they, he was trying to bring it all together. And I, I kind of thought, well, that's kind of a creative way of organizing things. It's a creative way of leading. As I began to kind of think about it, I thought, man, he's not a one-man show. He's organized and he's creative. What kind of results do you think that'll bring him in his kingdom? Not talking about spiritual results here, just talking about physical results, just about the organizations in place, just about the fact that he's being creative. So we're going to see, let's, let's see what he does. And I want to pick up in verse 20. And you can, on your own time, read verses. If you want to read all those names, go ahead and read them out loud to your kids. They'll get a good laugh at it. All right, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as number, numerous as the sand by the sea in the multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. i got to stop right there. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude. Do you remember hearing that before? Do you remember back in, maybe you've read it with, I don't think you guys were here with me when I taught it, but way back, maybe Kevin was, he's probably about the only one. Way back in Genesis uh, chapter 22, verse 16 and 17, I want to read this to you. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son. This is when Isaac um, was, was being sacrificed, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. So that was a promise of God way back in Genesis chapter 22 to Abraham that said, Abraham, because you've done this, because you haven't withheld your son, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sands of the sea. And then here in 1 Kings chapter 4, we read Judah and Israel in verse 20 were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude. You say, Rob, so what? That's the promise of God coming true. God said it, now it happened. Now, don't you think Abraham probably thought it was going to happen in his lifetime somehow? Well, he couldn't have because he was almost 100 when he had Isaac, or if not, if not being 100. But here we are, several hundred years later, God's word, God's promise rang true. Why do you pause to tell us that? Because the same promises, it's the same truth, the same things, the same scriptures that you hold on to, no weapon formed against me will prosper. The same, whatever the scriptures are that you hold on to, that, that God has spoken into your heart, those promises, they will ring true. They will come true, and you can hold on to them. Because time and time again, we see the promises of God being fulfilled through the scriptures. And I like that. So, we see here the promise of God being fulfilled. But what are the people doing? They're eating, and they're drinking, and they're rejoicing. They're happy, they're at peace. In verse 21, so Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the, tri as far as the tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now Solomon's 
provisions for one day was 36 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowls. That's his provision or his portion for one day. You say, well, Rob, what's a core? It's about a 55-gallon drum. So think of about a 55-gallon drum. So he had, he had uh, 30 55-gallon drums of fine flour, 60 55-gallon drums of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 10, 20 oxen from the pastures, 100 sheep. All of this food, they, said, they estimated it would feed about 35,000 people is what this, what this would feed every day from his kingdom. It's, that's, that's what's coming out. All of this would come out. And he continues... For he had dominion over all the region on the side of the river from the Tipsha, even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. And he had peace on every side all around him. Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree. From Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Now, here's what we see taking place here. Solomon is running a kingdom. We talked about his administration. It's not a one-man show. He's got everybody plugged in place to do their job. He's got an organized plan that's being played out. He's got, everybody's got their positions. He's creative in the way that he's doing things. And what he's getting is some incredible results. Notice in verse 20, the people were growing. They're numbering. They were, they were numerous. They were growing in number. They were, they were multiplying. They were becoming more numerous. Number two in verse 22, they were prospering. The provision is amazing there. The, the prosper, they, they were prospering as a result of Solomon's leadership. Number three, they, had, they were, had security. They weren't afraid of their enemies. Number four, they had the peace. They had a peace about him. It brought their joy to their life. It brought growth to their life. It brought security. It brought peace. You say, well, what's the connection there? Listen, Solomon's administration was being run the way that administration should be re- being run. And as a result of the way it's being run, it brought the, the growth in number of the people. But I believe they're also growing possibly spiritually, but they also brought their prosperity. It brought their security. It brought their peace. As I likened that to our family, I thought, man, in our families, if we as men, as we as leaders, were leading our families the way that we should be, we'd get these same results. Our families would be growing spiritually if we're leading them in Bible studies at home. We would be, might be growing in numbers too, I don't know. But we'd certainly be growing in prosperity. Not necessarily physical prosperity, but, but spiritual prosperity. We'd certainly be growing in security. We wouldn't have to be worried about what's going on with the enemy attacking us. We, we'd certainly have the peace of God around us. And I thought if we're missing these things, maybe it would be a good idea to go back and look at how are we administering our family? How, how are we running our families? And I also likened it to our church I thought man this, this fits our church as well our church is not a one I can't do everything in our church there was a time when we were much smaller I could do everything but now I can't possibly do everything that needs to be done I, I need help to get it done I need I need people to come alongside I need people to volunteer for children's ministry and this and that I need people to say hey can I help with the marriage conference can I do this where can I serve where can where, what can I do I, I, I need that kind of help I can't possibly do it myself. We need to be organized. Nobody wants to help something that's not organized. It doesn't make any sense. You, you just, if we're not organized and we don't have a plan in place, you don't even know what to do. You know, and, and we need to be secure on who we are and what God's called us to do. Not worried. Are people coming? Are people going? I don't care if people leave and go. I'm focusing on what God's called me to do. And it brings us to peace. We don't have to worry about it. You know, I've said a long time, I'm not trying to build a, church, a big church. I'm just trying to be obedient to God. 
Whatever God does, God does. That's his, that's his department. My, my department is to come here and teach the word on Thursdays and on Sundays. That's, that's his. And I need to figure out what he wants to do next. But I thought, man, that's our church as well. And when it comes to these kinds of things, when it comes to, hey, there comes a point where you've got to help out in church. There comes a point where you've got to plug in and, and be, you know, sometimes you need to just sit and listen and grow and learn and, and, and grow to where you can come to a place to help out. But there's other times where it's, you know, you got to, it's time to serve. Sometimes you've got to pick up, your, pull up your bootstraps and say, where can, I, where can I serve the body of Christ at? How can I fit in? What can I do? You know, and, and, and find out. And here's the, here's the thing. I'll always make the service opportunities available to you guys here, but I'm never going to come twist your arm. I'm, not, I'm never going to come to you and say, you know, I really need you to do this. And here's why. Because I wouldn't want to put you in a position. I wouldn't want to put you in a place that God hasn't called you to be in. Because I know what misery that can bring. I know what it can be like to, to serve, you know, all right, I'm going to do something because I have to and you don't really want to. And fine, I'll serve in the children's ministry, those brats. I, I understand what that, 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 can, that can birth that heart in somebody. And that's, you're not, then you're not serving God. You're serving me because I asked you to or because somebody asked you. To. You know, we, we want to be people who serve the Lord. So that's why I'll, you'll hear me when I announce children's ministry say, hey, pray about that if that's where God called you to serve. Or, you know, you know I, there, there's all kinds of little areas. If you have interest in the radio station, come talk to us. There's things that we can have, you can help with. If you have a background in computers, we, we certainly can use your help. There's all kinds of little things that you can plug in. But, but if you have a heart to serve and you don't know where to serve, what you do is you say, Lord, where can I serve? What can I do? How can I help? Hey, I'm a carpenter. Do you need anything built? Hey, I'm an electrician. Need anything fixed? Hey, I'm, I'm this. How can I help? You know, what can I do to help? But that's got to come from you. That's not going to come from us. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the administration has to be right. The organization needs to be organized. They need to be creative. And then they get these results. And then I got to thinking about it. Well, if it works for our church, it works for our family. I mean, I'm not a king in the church. and Certainly not a king in the family. I thought, man, when Jesus is on the throne, when he is king, whether it be in our life or whether it be tangibly during that millennial reign when he rules and reigns from Jerusalem, it will all work perfectly. It will all work perfectly. People will be growing in number, growing spiritually, prosperity, security, peace. He is the ultimate king because he doesn't make any mistakes. He has much more wisdom than Solomon ever had. He, he, he is the, the source of Solomon's wisdom. And I thought, wow, how cool will that be? You know, as I look at this and I look at Solomon, I think, man, what a great, what a great thing Solomon's got going here. He's, he's, he's on the right track. He's doing good. And then we come across verse 26. Look at verse 26. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. You say, what's wrong with that, Rob? That's good. Solomon had 40,000. Well, 2 Chronicles says 4,000. There says 40,000. We don't really know which is right. It could have been either one. Some scholars suggest 4,000, but as wealthy as Solomon was, it very well could have been 40,000. You, know you know how long of a line of stalls that would be? How, I mean, just take, just take your... How, how wide is a horse stall? 10 feet, maybe? Add 40,000. Put them in line. You have miles of horse stalls. That's a huge number. A huge number. But yeah, so what? He, he's just showing how... How strong he is, how, how it's smart. He's, he's building his army, not so much. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16.
Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16. Deuteronomy chapter, so a few pages to the left, chapter 17. I'm going to read in verse 14 just so we have it in context. He's speaking to governing kings here over the promised land. He says, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and you dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. That was a prophecy from Moses because they did that. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. You shall set a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Look at verse 16. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. So the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again, neither shall he multiply wives for himself. So you can turn back to 2 Kings. We talked about another little piece of compromise in Solomon's life. Another little piece there. What does it say? He had 40,000 horses, whether it be 40,000 or 4,000, doesn't really make. It says you shall not multiply horses, and you certainly better not go down to Egypt to get horses. Now, I don't want to ruin it for you, but you know what Solomon's going to do in the next few chapters? He's going to go to Egypt to get horses because he probably has all the horses around there. So this little tiny bit of compromise, first he took a wife from Egypt. Now he's multiplying horses to himself. And here's what I've come to understand. Just because he's a wise man doesn't mean he applies the wisdom to his own life. Just because he's a wise man doesn't mean he's taking his own advice. How many of us are like that? Oh, we can give the right advice. We can tell you what you need to hear. I, I, we, oh, let me tell you, let me tell you how to fix your life. But when it comes to my life... No, no, I don't take my own advice. That's what Solomon's doing. He wasn't as concerned with the spiritual things as his father David was. He was wise, absolutely, but wisdom won't save you. Wisdom is not the same as obedience to God. Solomon was a wise man, but just because he's wise, he fails to take his wisdom and apply it to his own life. And more importantly, he fails to take the word of God and apply it to his life. So how wise is he really? So here we go on here. He says, uh, we hear about the wisdom in verse uh, 27. And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for the King Solomon, all who came to King Solomon. So each of the 12 governors give Solomon food every month. There was no lack in their supply. They also bought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses, the steeds, each man according to his charge. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart, like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and the wisdom of the Egypt, for he was wiser than all these men. And there's a whole list of guys there that he, they were really smart men back then, I guess, but he's, he's smarter than all of them. He was wiser than all of them. He's, look at verse 32. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. We don't have all of them. We have some of them in the book of Proverbs. We have some of them. His songs were 1,005. That's a lot of songs to write. Spoke of trees from the cedars of Lebanon, even to the hyssops that springs out of the wall. That's from the great majestic tree to the little weed tree almost. And men of all nations from all kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So here he is. His wisdom is being made known. People are coming to see him. But yet we see some great things. He's wise. He sets up a great administration. 
He sets up a great organization in his home. He sets up a, a great government. And it's, it's organized. It's creative. And he's getting fantastic results. The people are growing in number. The people, the, it, they're prospering. They're secure. They're peace all around them. But there's compromise in the camp. But there's sin in the camp. He's not complying with God's word. He's not, he's not holding true to God's word. Instead, he's, he's looking at everything else and he's missing these little tiny areas of compromise. So what? It's just 40,000 horses. It's just one wife from Egypt. What difference does it make? It's just a, everybody does that, Rob. Man, we can apply that to our life today, can't we? Everybody does. Everybody watches that TV show. You need to watch that. Everybody does. Everybody, that's just, it's just a culture. We call it, it's our culture that we live in. Be careful of compromise. It's going to bring Solomon down. It's going to bring him down because of his compromise as we continue studying. But he's doing great. At this point, his compromise is barely even noticed. Nobody's, I mean, no, he wouldn't even listen. How could, how could I be doing anything wrong? I'm having such success. But it's going to bring him down. Look at verse chapter 5. Now Haram, the king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he had heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Haram had always loved David. So Haram is the king of Tyre. Tyre is about 100 miles north and a little bit west of Israel. It's on the, on the coast there. Um, and he, he, he knew, obviously he knew David and he heard that Solomon has taken the throne. So he sends his servants down to see what kind of relationship he's going to have with Solomon. And look what Solomon says to Haram, sends to Haram in verse 3. He says, you know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord puts his foes under the soles of his feet. It's interesting that, that, that Solomon references it that way because it shows that David had talked to Haram about this. He says, you know this. You already know that my dad, David, couldn't build the house. You're already aware that he couldn't build a house for the Lord because of, he was a man of war. and There wasn't rest for the soles of his feet. And look at verse 4. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. It's good he's given glory to the Lord. The Lord my God has given me rest. On every side there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. Behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command, and they command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay your wages for your servants according to whatever you say. For you know there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like, like the Sidonians. So what he's asking the king, he says, listen, I need some, I need some wood. I need some, timber to get, I need some timber. I'll send servants and your servants help and I'll take care of the bill. But I need your, I need your lumber. Can I have your lumber? And that, that's basically what he's questioning. You know, when you wanted to build something back in the day, you couldn't go to Lowe's and pick the boards up off, the, off of the aisle. You had to, you know, you couldn't stop there and say, well, I'll take, you know, this many two-by-fours and this many. It, it didn't work that way. You, you started with what? You started with a saw and a tree. And you had to then cut the tree. You had to make the boards. You had to mill the boards. And you had to dry the boards. And you had to do everything that you would do. And we're talking about cedar trees here. So he says, we're going to do this. And he's waiting for a response. Verse 7, so it was when Haram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. So he's happy for it. He sends word back to Solomon. He says, I've considered the message which you sent me, and I'll do all you desire concerning the cedar and the cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. I will float them in the rafts by the sea to the place you indicate to me and will have them broken apart there. And you can take them away, and you shall fulfill my desire to give food 
for my household. So Haram says, sure, we'll give you all the wood you need. We're behind you on this. Haram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. Solomon gave Haram 20,000 cores of wheat. How, many, how much is in a core? Who remembers? 55-gallon drum, right? 20,000 55-gallon drums of wheat as food for his household. 20 cores of pressed oil. Thus Solomon gave Haram year by year. The Lord gave Solomon wisdom. He promised him. And there was peace between Haram and Solomon. The two of them made a treaty together. King Solomon raised up a labor force out of Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men. You think you can get 30,000 men to accomplish a single task without being organized? No way. You can't get three people to accomplish a single task without being organized of some sort. 30,000 men. Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens, 80,000 who quarried stone in the mountains, besides 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people who labored in the work. The king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones, and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple. This is kind of cool. Uh, Charles Spurgeon did a whole message on this, on, on the kind of stones that they were quarrying. They were costly stones, which means they were, they were quality stones. And they were building, they were, they were quarrying, which means they were cutting them out of an existing rock and they were moving them to the temple where they were going to lay them as the, as the foundation. And the foundation stone is what would never be seen. It's what would be underground. But we understand how important it is to have a good foundation. We understand how, how important it is to have, the, have a quality foundation. And Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, this verse speaks in three ways. It speaks to the way that we should work for God. He said it speaks to the way that God works in us, and it speaks to the way God builds the church. And the first way that he talks about it, he said it speaks to the way that we should work for God. We don't work for appearance only, but also to excel in the deep and hidden things. I want, dear friends, to urge that all of our work for God should be done thoroughly, and especially that part of which lies lowest and is least observed by men. You see, there's a tendency for us to do the things that we're going to get credit for. There's a tendency to do the things that we're going to get noticed for. We're going to get a pat on the back for. But what he's saying is this is Solomon's taken great, great detail, great cost to, to, to collect and, and quarry quality, costly stones to, just to set the strong foundation. For without the strong foundation, the whole structure will crumble. When's the last time you went over to somebody's house and said, boy, let me see your foundation? You don't. You'll see the kitchen and the bathroom and the bedroom. But when's the last time you said, let me see what kind of foundation this place is built on? You know, but you'll see what kind of foundation it was built on as the years go by, won't you? We live in an old town. How many buildings are sagging? How many buildings are starting to, you see the, the, you know, the second floor starting to sag and they're propping them back up. The foundation is, is giving way. It's shifting. What we're going to see is he's, he's, he's building these quality, these costly stones. And we're going to get back to that in a minute. But I want to finish point two. Charles Spurgeon said, this is the way that God works in us. You see, this is the way that we should work for God, quality workmanship, workmanship that can't be seen, as though we're working under the Lord himself, but it's also the way that God works in us. He starts at our very foundation. He starts where it can't be seen, inside of us. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, this, is, this speaks to the way that God works in us. He works in the deep and the hidden things. When others are concerned with mere appearances, we have been the subjects of a great deal of secret, unseen, underground work. 
The Lord has spent upon us a world of care. My brother, you would not like to unveil those great searchings of heart of which you have been the subject. You have been honored in public, and if so, you have had many a whipping behind the door lest you should glory in your flesh. You ever had a spiritual spanking in your life? We don't want to talk about those, do we? Those are for me. I, when, I get, when, when the Lord rebukes me, it's for, I don't want to come up here and tell you guys, hey, this is what the Lord showed me today. That, that's, for, that's between me and him. I, I want to tell you what the Lord's doing great, and that's the way that we are. But without those spiritual spankings in our life, without those things that are rocking our very foundation that we're building strong on, what are we really building upon? We're building upon stuff that's going to fall over, stuff that's not going to hold up. Spurgeon said, all those chastenings, humblings, and searchings of the heart have been a private laying of foundations for higher things. In other words, the Lord's building you. He's making something out of you. He starts with your very foundation. And maybe you're still on the foundation part. But then he starts building and building and building and building. But it all has to start deep down inside where nobody can see. That's where the work of the Lord starts. Not on the outside where everybody can see. It's down on the inside at the very core of... Who, he can't build you from the top down. He's going to build you from the bottom up. From your foundation, from your inside. To make you so that he can... He can build you for higher things, as he says. There's, there's more work to be done. And aren't you glad that it's, he promises to finish that work? Sometimes you drive around, you see an unfinished construction project, don't you? That's none of us. You see, we're all under construction. We're all being built, and he will finish that work someday. Now, I can't tell you how long that's going to take. It might take you a little while. Matter of fact, it's going to take you a long time. I'm almost done. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm far from being done, and more than likely, so are you. And I think that we'll be done the day that we meet him face to face. Until then, we can just put a sign on that says, under construction. And let, allow the Lord to continue to work in you and make those changes, make those, shape your life, draw those things out of Scripture, rebuke you, chasten you, and just allow you to keep changing so that you can be more like him. So I don't believe you'll actually be done until you meet him face to face. So as long as we're here, we're under construction. The third thing that Spurgeon said, he said, this speaks to the way that God builds the church. He wants us to do a work of deep, strong foundations instead of a work a mile wide, but an inch deep. You see, the church needs to be built on a strong foundation of the word of God. It, we don't want to be, it doesn't matter how many numbers there are. It's, it's much better to have a smaller group with a strong foundation that's going to stand. It's not about, let me read what he says. To maintain solid truth, you need solid people. Vital godliness is therefore to be aimed at. 20,000 people, all merely professing faith, but having no energetic life, may not have grace enough among them to make 20 solid believers. Poor, sickly believers turn the church into a hospital rather than a camp. In other words, a camp, he doesn't mean like a, like a camp for fighting, like a, like a useful camp, like a, like a battleground or you know, a camp for fighting. He said, listen, this is the way that God builds the church. The church needs to be built with a solid foundation. And I believe that solid foundation is on the word of God. That's, that's, that's why we teach the way that we do. That's why we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Because when you do that, when you listen, you're building your foundation. You're building your life. It's building, God's building this church on his word. He's the one doing the work. If he's the one doing your work in your life and he's the one doing the work in the church, he's the one that gets all the glory for it. And that's what we want to take place. Now, let's move on to chapter six. We are flying tonight. Four, five, now we're on to six. Oh, we still got time. It came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt 
So there are 480 years. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now the house which the king Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its width 20, and its height 30 cubits. Anybody know how long a cubit is? How long? There's two of them. A short cubit is 18 inches, a long cubit is 21 inches. That's how they measured it. So the, the general short cubit was known as 18 inches. The long cubit would have been 21. Probably you'd be pretty, pretty good guess that it's an 18-inch cubit there. Yep. Verse 4, he made the house windows with beveled frames against the walls of the temple. He built chambers all around against the walls of the temple. It's kind of interesting. And he goes on to kind of describe the temple here. This, this is what's known as Solomon's temple. It's a three-level temple or a three-story temple. There's rooms attached on the outside. It's made of cut stone uh, it t- it's going to take him seven years to complete it. So this is kind of, th- there's different chambers that he's talking about. And then in verse 7, I want you to look at it. It says, and the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. So at the end of chapter 5, we saw the, large, we saw the quarry large, costly stones. So they're, in other words, what they're doing is they're making the stones off-site somewhere. And they're bringing them to the Temple Mount. So when he talks about large stones, think huge stones. Talk about a large stone. When he talks about costly stones, this was quarried off-site and then brought to the Temple Mount so that there wouldn't be a hammer and a chisel hitting it at the Temple Mount. And it fits together, every one of those joints fit together perfectly, and they haven't moved. They're still there. Here we are, almost, well, probably close to 3,000 years from the time that would have been placed. It's still sitting there. Let's look down to, uh, let's start in verse 8. The doorway for the middle story was on the right side of the temple. They went up the stairs... Let's go down to verse 12. Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all of my commandments and walk in them, I will perform my word with you which I spoke to your father David. This is warning number three to Solomon. He's been warned two previous times about walking in the ways of the Lord, walking in the ways of the Lord. And I thought this was really cool. Because it's interesting to me that we saw that a little more compromise crept into his life, and yet another warning comes along. A little more compromise, and yet another warning. A little more compromise, and yet another warning. He said, I'll dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. And Solomon built the temple and finished it in verse 14. And he built the inside walls, the temple, cedar boards. He's going to go on for the rest of the chapter 6 to tell us all about how he built it. Uh, If you're an artist, read it and try to draw it. I'd love to see a rendering of it. Uh, Verse 19, he prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold, overlaid the altar of cedar. You'll find that everything in there is overlaid with gold. They suspect that he had 5,000 tons of gold. That's 10,000 pounds of gold. Do your math per ounce, what it would be worth today. It's a huge amount of number. It makes you ask the question, where did it all go? Who has it all? Where's it all hidden at? Where, I, nobody knows. They suspect that David, remember David stored up most of this stuff. 
David had taken, he, he had, because he understood he couldn't build the temple, he was, he was saving these items and collecting these items. And from, his, from when he would conquer a nation, he would bring the stuff back and it, would, it was stored up for this. He knew that Solomon was going to build the temple. Uh, but, but Solomon here, we read that he prepares the inner sanctuary. Inner sanctuary, the inside of the temple, to set the ark in. It's, it's the place where, where the Lord would dwell. And I thought something was really interesting. They're building a temple for the Lord, and their focus is not on the people, it's on God. I thought, man, all the churches we build, we build for the people. We always build to accommodate the people, enough space, enough this, enough that. They're building a temple for God. They're not worried about the people, they're worried about the Lord. They're building it as unto the Lord. And then I begin to think about it some more, I'm like, he's building... He's building the inner sanctuary. That's what's known as the holy place or the holy of holies. It's where, it's where God would meet with the high priest once a year, where, where, they, would go, where they would go in that one time a year. It's where, it's where God's presence would be. It, it's, this, it's this incredible place. And I thought, well, wait a minute. In the New Testament, we're the temple of God. Our body's the temple of God. He wants to dwell inside of us. He, the holy place is inside of us now. It's not in a temple anymore. It's him dwelling inside of us. As I began to kind of look at this whole thing and, and look at these couple of chapters together, I thought, man, what a, so many points here. We see Solomon's organization and how well, but we also see his, how well it's laid out and how well it's organized, but we also see this little bit of compromise in Solomon's life. We also see that little bit there, and then we see such a gentle warning from the Lord. Solomon, you need to walk in my judgments, keep my statutes, execute my commands, execute my judgments, keep my commandments, and walk in them, then... I'll perform my word with you. A little bit of compromise, Solomon. And I think then we see Solomon building the temple and what a beautiful thing it is, but he's not addressing the compromise in his life. And while Solomon goes on to address and and do great things for God in building the temple, and next week we'll see he builds some other buildings. He builds the carts and the pillars and all this kind of stuff gets built. But in his own life, his own spiritual condition was declining. It was getting worse. It was getting a little bit worse and a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And I thought, man, how could that be a picture of us? And I thought, you know, I, think, I, I, I don't know if I said it on Thursday or Sunday. I can't remember. Um, I have an acquaintance of mine that was a pastor that had to step down from the pulpit because he had a little bit of compromise in his life that he never addressed. It just kept growing and growing and growing and growing, and eventually it blew up. It, cost, may, it may cost him his marriage. It cost him his ministry. All because he never heeded the warnings of God. And it made me think, Lord, Rob, is there compromise in, in my life? Is there something in my life that needs to be addressed? And I want to ask you the same question. Is there compromise in your life? Is there some little thing that, that the Lord has told you, hey, handle this, deal with this. Don't keep going down this road. You know, we're going to find out that Solomon, what, what did we read last week? He had 700 wives and 300 concubines because two, three, four wasn't enough. As if 700 would be enough. You know, I just, I just look at my life, and, and I can't speak for you guys, but I don't want to have any compromise in my life. I don't want to be a guy. He did great things for the Lord, but by the way, by the end of his life, man, he fell apart. He's, all he's known for is 700 wives and 300 concubines. Yeah, he, he was smart. He was, he was the smartest man that ever lived, but he never took his own advice. He was smart, but he never followed the word of God. He, he, yeah, he, he wrote, and we, he wrote Ecclesiastes, nothing new under the sun. He, he was right on. He had it all down for us. But he never took his own advice. He didn't heed it. Just because he's wise doesn't mean he's listening to what he's saying. And I thought, man, where did he fall short? And he fell short in obeying the word of God. He fell short in obeying God's word when he didn't 
He didn't do the things that God had told him to do. God warned him and said, don't go down this road. And he went down the road, and he did it. And we'll watch as it unfolds. But he's not done building. He's going to do a lot for the Lord. So before we close tonight, let's just take a few minutes and pray. And if the Lord's got something on your heart that, you know, he's dealing with you on, let him deal with you on it. Let tonight be a night of repentance for you. If, if not, if you go, no, I'm not living a life of compromise, then praise the Lord. Let it be a time of thanksgiving and praise. Because I'm sure you remember when you were in a place of compromise. I'm sure you remember getting out of it. So let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we go through this, we see such incredible things. We see your hand at work in Solomon's life. We see your warnings ringing true. We see the, 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 them, them clearly, him, you know, clearly again being warned about following your statutes. Lord, could that be a warning for us tonight? Could you be warning us as well? If so, would you just minister to us through the Holy Spirit, Lord? Let us know what we need to do, whether we need to repent. And Father, if not, and we pray for our brothers and sisters, may we give glory and praise to you. So just seek the Lord for a few minutes on your own.